ahead and get started here. Let me open us with prayer, and we'll uh, pick up. We have a lot to discuss uh, this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we pause now. Uh, we, have, uh, we have awakened. We've been given another day of life. We've been ready, prepared ourselves, come to, to church. Um, and Lord, we ask that you would now help us to, to focus our minds, calm our hearts, uh, and to begin to think about how good you are being to us. We come into a place like this, we have a family waiting for us. We have uh, planned and prepared opportunities to worship you uh, laid out before us. Uh, planned opportunities to sing, uh, to be led in singing, to, to sing good, true things to you, about you, to each other about you. To pray not by ourselves, but together with our, with our church family. And also, Lord, to be taught uh, by you, to, be, to get the chance to think through, uh, have, have biblical ideas laid down before us. And God, all of these things make us very grateful to you. You have truly not left us to ourselves. You have not left us alone in this life. You have filled our lives with good things. And uh, you are faithful to us. We are experiencing your faithfulness right now. And God, we thank you. As we turn now to the next chapter in, our, in this Sunday school study, we thank you for it. And we ask that you would help us, Lord, to think your thoughts after you. Please guard us in our thinking. I pray that you'd guard me. I thank you for the time you've given me to prepare. And I ask that this time would be used by the Holy Spirit to bless and sanctify us. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we come back to frame. Uh, we are at a pretty interesting chapter this week. Last time, Seth led us through uh, the, the chapter 20, which focused on, in particular, the goodness of God. Uh, I get to focus on, among other things, the wrath of God. And so that it was a little bit lopsided there, but that's okay. This is, this is, a, this is a really interesting chapter. Um, asking some important questions for us. We're going to see the second half of this as we shift from righteousness to wrath, for example. He's going to ask questions like, um, uh, do the following things conflict with what we've already seen about the love of God, the goodness of God? Uh, And he'll ask that about wrath, but not just wrath. He'll also ask it about uh, the places where the Bible describes God as hating and where it describes God as jealous. How do these ideas that God reveals of himself, how do they uh, come into play with the love and goodness of God that we've been uh, seeing? So we have some really really good and important things to think about, things that come up in our own thinking uh, inevitably in life, especially in uh, difficult times of life. Before we get to that, though, let's recap just a little bit. Um, Here's where we are. October 13th. Do you notice that October 17th is not on, uh, hang on a second here, October 27th, not 17th. October 27th is not on the calendar there. October 27th is the weekend of the men's retreat. Uh, I don't know that, it's, that, that everyone knows this yet, so we're announcing and we'll be announcing there is no Sunday school, children or adults, on the 27th of October. So you have heard it. 
Uh, we'll continue to announce it as well, but uh, that's why that week is missing there. We're going to have a lot of people out, and I'm very excited about that. Um, God's righteousness and wrath uh, is what we're, what we're looking at this weekend. Do you remember, um, here's our covenantal triad again. Seth quizzed us on this last week, if we could remember what this triangle is talking about. Uh, and there were some correct answers there, that this is really an attempt to describe in a picture uh, what we mean when we say that God is the Lord. God is Lord, meaning in particular that he has control, he possesses all authority, and he is covenantally present with his, with his creation. So that's why we call it the covenantal triad. Uh, he, he has put up this chart for us too, which I'm really thankful that he, that he built. Uh, we get that out of, out of several chapters of Frame. This is Frame's attempt to take a number of the attributes of God and categorize them based on these three things. So you see control, authority, presence. Those three words are on the left side column. Do you see that? Control, authority, presence. So he's taken those three ideas and tried to be helpful to us by, uh, by organizing some of, what we would, some of the language we would use to talk about God. Um, when he laid out that table, he was also very careful to talk about the limitations of this table. And he even says at one point in the book, he says, I wrestled with whether to even put this, this chart in the book or not, because it's, it would very easily be unhelpful in some ways, and some of that will come up this morning as we talk about righteousness. Um, but he, he, in the end, he decided to put it in. He felt like it, it does help as an entire picture to give us a sense of um, the different ways that the same one God uh, and who he is uh, comes at us from these three different uh, directions. <laughs> okay. Uh, righteousness is where this is especially going to, to come into play. All right. You notice righteousness is in the authority category there. The, f- the first couple of paragraphs of this chapter, he, he, he says, okay, this is a good table. It's helpful to us. But already, even with righteousness, we can see a problem because there's multiple ways we'll talk about this morning. There's more than one way that the Bible uses the idea of righteousness. And in some of those ways, it's specifically talking about control. So he says righteousness very much can come into the realm of control. But when, when the Bible uses the term righteousness like this, it's really describing the goodness of God. So it's an example of how these attributes often overlap, even in meaning sometimes, the words overlap. Uh, but he says this is a limitation of the table. Okay, so there's the... Uh, there's the qualifier about this table. If anyone's been scratching their head a little bit with some placement of some things on here, just know Frame does that too. And there's places where he says, you know, maybe this could go over here. <laughs> it's, it's, that's one of the things that's fun about reading him. Is it's almost like you're, you're having a conversation with him, and he'll reflect back on some things that he's done, and it's kind of nice. I appreciate the, the honesty with that. Um, righteousness. Half of our time and half of the chapter is dedicated to this question. How is God's righteousness spoken of in the scriptures? Uh, when, we, when we try to define the word, what we do is we look into God's word and we see especially uh, two word families. Uh, there's the word sedek and the word dikaiosune, Old Testament, New Testament. Those, are, those two words are what we use to get the idea of righteousness uh, in our English Bibles. 
They are translated a number of different ways, though. Those two words sometimes are translated righteousness. Sometimes it's translated rightness. Sometimes it's translated justice. And sometimes lawfulness. So you'll have, I mean, the, the very same word in certain of our passages, it, we will translate it as righteousness. That same word in other places when it's talking about God, it will translate it as just. Now that's helpful to know that it's all coming from the same word so we can know when we talk about the righteousness of God. In some ways, we are talking about not something different than his justice. We're describing the idea that he's just. So take all of these words together. Righteousness, rightness, justice. And we, we start to get a sense of what the Bible is telling us about God when it uses this word or these words. And can you hear in those, all of them together, can you hear a sense of um, a, even a legal standard of rightness, a legal standard of moral uprightness? This is what's meant when we call God righteous, when he calls himself righteous. Um, already, even in that definition, I mean, we could go back to the table that we just had up and see some other words that blend with that. Isn't the idea of holiness near to that as well? The, the sense of, the, of his existence as a standard of moral uprightness? They're, they're, that's very close together. The, the concept of the goodness of God surely has much to do with this as well. But often when we talk about righteousness, we're focusing on that in the legal sense even. The, the courtroom sort of sense of the righteousness of God. Um, Frame has a whole couple of paragraphs in this chapter where he describes the large overlap between this week, righteousness of God, and last week, goodness of God. That sometimes when the Bible speaks of his righteousness, we'll see it in a minute, I'm kind of jumping ahead of us, but sometimes when the Bible speaks of his righteousness, it's specifically talking about what Seth talked about last week, that God is good. Um, and then there's other ways that it's used as well. So let's go through, let's go through these. Um, three ways, this frame's going to put these, the uses of righteousness in the Bible into three categories. All right, the first one is that sometimes uh, God's righteousness is spoken of to speak of God's character itself. Uh, we see this especially in the Bible in places uh, of worship, where songs are being sung to God. He's being, his essential person is being spoken of. So we have Deuteronomy 32, verse 4b. We'll look at the first part of this verse in a minute, too. Uh, in the Song of Moses, it says, um, a, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Right? That just, there's the word, it's the same word here, righteous. Just and upright is he. It's just simply describing the character of God. Uh, Psalm 92, 15. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So just descriptions of the character of God itself. Not, not uh, specific statements about what he's doing or how he's looking at us. Descriptions of himself. And this is who he is. There is no unrighteousness in him. He is just and upright. At other times, the words are used to describe uh, God's standard for himself, but especially in relation to his creation. 
This is not disconnected from the first. The first is the reason that these others uh, can happen, the reason that we can speak in these other ways. Uh, but maybe you can hear a slight difference in how the word is used in some of these other places. So Leviticus 19.1, uh, and Peter picks up this and quotes it in the New Testament as well. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now that's kind of number one and number two. This is it's a, a statement about the character of God. But because of that, it is also now revealed, God's righteousness is revealed as a standard for us. Be perfect, be holy, because I am holy. Matthew 5.48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Same word being used, same idea being conveyed, but now we're, we're not speaking directly of God's character, we're speaking of God's standard. He has a righteous standard for his creation. Uh, and then the third way that, uh, that he's going to organize these, and he spends really most of the time in this chapter where he talks about righteousness, he spends most of his time on this third one, uh, thinking of how the Bible describes God's actions as righteous. And Frame puts it this way. He, just, he says, it describes God's actions by which he makes his righteousness prevail. Uh, a couple of, couple of verses to put up here before we think more uh, about it. The, the part A of that Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock. His ways are perfect, and all his ways are just. Right. He is perfect. His ways are perfect. Uh, and and are are altogether just. Um, and then Psalm one forty five seventeen is the other one I'll put up here. The Lord is righteous in all His ways, and loving toward all that He has made. Now here's he moves here. You have a big kind of paragraph break, and he starts this long discussion about um, how in the Bible when we look at uh, God's God's righteous actions toward us, how they wind up showing up toward a, specifically, toward a fallen creation. I don't know if you're like me. If I was just asked the question, all right, God is righteous, right? Um, completely, perfectly upright and just, himself the standard of all, of all rightness um, and the standard that he places on us. If I were to be asked, well, how does that righteous God's righteousness reach out toward me? I'm a sinner. So when God's, not his graciousness, not his patience, not his mercy, when his righteousness reaches out, what's that look like? If I were asked that, I wouldn't have the most just knee-jerk, pleasant, or uh, happy reaction. I would think that what I should be getting ready for is something very fearful, Am I the only one that would, that would have that kind of reaction? I mean, that's, um, this is what surprised me a lot in this chapter, is he's going to make the case here that, that we need to notice that the Bible goes out of its way when it speaks of his righteousness towards us. <clears throat> um, he goes out of his way to, to speak of his righteousness towards us in the realm of salvation, that God's righteousness extended toward his creatures is manifested in his plan of redemption, his plan to save. Yes, but in, in the final analysis, Christ is all 
and in all, and he is the, I, I absolutely couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's go through this, because it, it, it really does, I mean, in a sense, we could take your statement and just pray and, and close. <laughs> but um, l- l- tell me at the end, I'll come back if I remember and, and ask if, if, uh, if we've hit it at what you're going at. Um, let's look at a few, at, at a few things um, that, that he lays out here. In this, in this context of what does the Bible say about God's righteousness in the sphere of our salvation? And he makes a couple of, of distinctions. He says, notice that God's righteousness is often spoken of, I mean, using these words, that his righteousness is displayed uh, when he temporally acts to save. All right, so we're not talking here about necessarily about salvation. We're talking about um, those who are in need of rescue, receiving rescue from God. All right? So we think of, um, I mean, I just put up a couple of examples. You can think of so many more places where God is revealed as one who cares for the oppressed. Right? Think of what he says about his heart for the widows and orphans and the call upon us to care in those ways. And very often when he's describing that, what he's describing is, he brings them up as examples because these are groups that often can be unrighteously taken advantage of. They are helpless. And as a result, wicked men often will take advantage. And when they're being taken advantage of and they cry out to the Lord, the Bible says God hears them. He hears them and he responds. Um, and when he does that, the Bible uses the word righteousness. It says that God's righteousness is on display as he protects the oppressed. Would you agree that that is a display of the righteousness of God? These are sinners we're talking about, but in the realm of sinful man, some are often righteous in comparison to their oppressors, right? And in that comparison, God hears the cry of the one who is being unrighteously oppressed and saves. And when he does that, it's not just his graciousness that's being displayed, it's his righteousness that's being displayed. Does that distinction make sense? So this is, so far, really just talking about temporal situations. Um, but even as we move to, to the realm of, of actual salvation, forgiveness of sin, we see that the same heart of God is, 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 being, um, is being highlighted. What we find is that God is a God who, when he acts in righteousness, what he is doing is he is hearing and um, and responding to those who are crying out to him for rescue. Think about what is happening in someone uh, when they cry out to the God of the Bible, to the triune God for rescue. They are perceiving that they're in a situation of need that they cannot take care of, and they need someone to rescue them, and they're thinking of options, and they identify, oh, the God of the Bible. He is one who cares. He is one who is able to save, I'm going to cry out to him. I'm not going to cry out to these other gods or put my hope somewhere else. He can save. And he, and he will save because he's good. I cry out to him. That's what he responds to. Cries in, in, which, are, which amount to acts of trust in him. Trust in his might. Trust in his righteousness to do what is good and to do what is right. Um, there's a couple of examples he brings up in the, in the chapter. One is 1 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, Samuel is talking about God's actions. Uh, he's, he's preaching to the Israelites in 1 Samuel 12. 
Um, and he, he's reminding them of what God did when he rescued them from, from Egypt. All right, so you, you have the context of where he is. And he specifically in that chapter calls those actions of God where he rescued Israel. He calls them, uh, let me recount to you God's righteous deeds. That's what he says. And Frame asks the question, why did he put it that way? That, that clearly means that God's righteousness was displayed in everything he did to bring Israel out of Egypt. But why, why righteousness? Again, we would not bat an eye if he said, let me recount to you the gracious deeds of God, the loving deeds of God, the merciful deeds of God. But he specifically says, Samuel says, I will recount to you the righteous deeds of God when he brought you out. Was, I mean, Israel was a sinful people in Egypt, right? Did they deserve any good thing? Of course they did not. Why is this righteousness? Okay, he has made promises to them in the past. That's right. So it's a display of his righteousness in, in that way. It would be unrighteous to fail to keep one's promises. Yeah. What, it was striking to me. I don't think I put the text up here. No. Um, some of you are opening to, to uh, 1 Samuel 12. Just for sake of time, I decided not to put it up there. But if you, on your own time, were to look through, um, Samuel specifically emphasizes, I think, three times in the course of these couple paragraphs. What he emphasizes is that when they were oppressed, they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard them. That's what's being emphasized. And if you go back into Exodus, you, it, the, the same thing is, is emphasized there. Not just that God had made promises, he remembered, but that when they were in need, what do they do? They were being unrighteously oppressed. They cried out to Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, rescue us. Hear our cries and our agony and rescue us. And God heard them, and he did. And so Samuel looks back on all of those things and says, let me tell you all about the righteous deeds of this righteous God that we serve, the God who hears the oppressed. There's so many displays in, throughout history, right, of, of God um, upholding promises and showing himself. Every time he puts himself on display in these things, it looks, it looks the same. This is a God who is righteous, and all his ways are righteous. It sure does, um, it gives new life, I think, to the warnings that he gives us. Do not be someone who thinks it safe to oppress those who don't have any representation or defense. Because I hear them, I see, and I will defend them. So be careful. Uh, Apparently, he's been putting this on display about himself for for some time. Um, Another place, and we're going to go here, I will put this on on the screen, is uh, Romans chapter 3. Before I do that, this is not on the screen. Let me read this from from frame here, just because I have it in my notes. (laughs) He says, um, although the cause of the afflicted is righteous compared to that of their oppressors, God delivers them not because of their own good works, but because they cry out to God for mercy. They are therefore justified by faith in God's righteousness and not their own. Are you starting to hear little previews of the gospel message here, right? A God is a God who rescues. We are a people who will be rescued if we're rescued, not because of any good thing we've done, but because when we became aware of our great need, we trusted that God is who he says he is, that he alone can save us, and we've looked to him 
to rescue us. Those are the people that he saves, that he rescues. That's, that's the gospel, right? That this is the news of the complete exclusivity of God's one way of salvation and the call on us to not walk by what we see, walk by a, a settled conviction, a trust, that he will keep his promises. And he's promised that he will never turn anyone away who comes to him by faith in his son and the work that his son accomplished. That, that, well, we're hearing the gospel in this. And that brings us pretty well, I think, to Romans 3. Um, I'm going to put this on the screen. Romans 3, 25 and 26, Paul's been speaking about Jesus. He says this, he says, um, Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What God has done in Christ and the fact that he did it that way, what is it put on display? It puts his mercy and his grace on display, but it fundamentally as well puts his righteousness on display. And both sides of it are, are described here. It puts his righteousness on display because God's righteousness will never allow sin to go unpunished. It cannot. It must not because he is righteous. Right? That, uh, that guilt, that blood guilt must be paid. Because of sin, he was angry and wrathful. I mean, what this, remember propitiation, what that means. This has to do with an appeasement of wrath. Jesus was that. It was put forward uh, by God to appease his own wrath against sin. Uh, why? Because he had been saving people, forgiving sins all the way back to Genesis. He'd been saving a people, overlooking their sins. How does a righteous God save anybody before the sacrifice has been made? Because they were saved on the basis of trusting his promise, what he was going to do. And when they trusted him, he displayed his righteousness by overlooking, by covering their sin. Uh, And when Christ came and he shed his blood, God displayed that that was fundamentally just and right for him to do. So now, the great mystery of the universe is solved. He, God is both just and the justifier of sinners. How could that ever be? So much of the, New, the Old Testament is just th- that. It's the wrestling. How could this, and God will put little prophecies in that sound really good, but you go, but wait, how could God, I thought he was, how could he do that? And then Christ comes, and you see how this, this, this unsolvable problem of our sinfulness in the face of a righteous God is solved in Christ. It's a pretty amazing story. You couldn't make movies about this and do it. It'd be a disappointing movie. You ever have a great book and then you dread when they come out with a movie because you know they're going to screw it up? Some of my favorite... I, I can't learn my lesson, though. I'll still, if they come out with a movie of a book I like, I'll still go watch it. But I don't think I've ever been happy I did that once. Um, yes, exactly right. And Frame goes there at the end of the chapter that... This is how, in 1 John 1, God is not just faithful to forgive, he is also just to forgive. And that's another placement. There are several places where this word, righteous or just, is placed in a place that makes no proper sense unless God has displayed his righteousness exactly how he did in Christ, in salvation. 
And I'm glad you mentioned that, because that's, I mean, remember what we're doing is we're seeing that God's, this surprising news that God's righteousness towards us is fundamentally put on display in history, not by judgment, although his righteousness is displayed by judgment, very much so, and we'll see that in a minute. But his righteousness is displayed in the gospel message, in what he has done in Christ. The way he has saved is a display of his righteousness. Uh, It's not only the other. And that's been helpful to me. So here in Romans 3, uh, God judges Christ to uphold his righteousness. And Christ dies to give justification, as it were, for the Father to righteously pass over the sin of his people. And so... Um, we, could, we could put it, we could kind of sum it up this way. All of God's redemptive plan serves to highlight the righteousness of the triune God. I don't mean that at the exclusion of other things. His mercy is certainly highlighted. His, you know, this is getting us back to the reality we've tried to bring up here and there in the study of attributes, and that is that we're always talking about the, the one triune God as we're trying to look at him in these different, to, to, to see how we can put words to his revelation of himself. Uh, but he is not a, a God made up of a bunch of parts, and so let's talk about this part now. That's not who God is. He is simple. He is one. And so all, um, uh, if that's true, we will not be able to help, as we talk about, for example, this week, righteousness. We won't be able to help but to, talk about other uh, words we've, that we're using and that the Bible uses to get at this, 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 uh, this God. Um, any questions? We're about to move to, uh, to the second part of the, of the chapter. Any, any thoughts or comments on what we've seen about righteousness in general, righteousness and salvation, before we move on? Okay, so uh, this, is, this is the righteousness part of the chapter, we move now to something different, but we're going we're gonna to look at, at, uh, at this. Here we go. Uh, the title kind of lied to us. The title of the chapter said Righteousness and Wrath, but it's really Righteousness, uh, Jealousy, Hatred, and Wrath. So it's even worse than you thought whenever I first put it up there. Um, we're looking at these things... Uh, right now on purpose, because we're looking at them in relation to what we just said about God's righteousness and salvation, and what we said last week about God's goodness. All right, that's the context that we're looking, that we're looking at these things in. Uh, and the question that's asked is this, do these three things, which we will see, are all spoken of in reference to God in Scripture, do those things conflict with what we have seen so far about God's goodness, His love, his grace, uh, or this morning, his righteousness. Uh, some of these, uh, you can probably, hopefully you can already look at these and go, okay, I know enough about jealousy to know that his jealousy doesn't conflict with his love. Some of these are harder than others for us, and there's reason for that. I think good reason, as we'll see. So let's go, I've decided to pick kind of an ascending order here in terms of difficulty. Let's look at jealousy first. Um, so Frame says this. You, you search the scriptures. See if you can agree with this. I, th- I think he's right. He says, to my knowledge, scripture never presents... Oh, I have it up here. To my knowledge, scripture never presents jealousy as a negative trait. 
Every time the, the concept of jealousy appears in Scripture, it's a positive thing, not a negative. Uh, it, it, now, he distinguishes between jealousy and envy. Envy is not the same as jealousy. Isn't that interesting? What's the difference between envy and jealousy? What's rightly yours? Did everybody hear that? He said you, you envy the things that are someone else's. You are jealous for the things that are yours. Uh, envy is forbidden. Envy is, you could easily call it a form of idolatry because it is, it is questioning either God's goodness or his, or his power to give you what you need. If I want something that you have that I don't have, if I envy it, I am calling God's wisdom into question for not giving it to me. I should have that thing, and God did not give it to me, and so I have a problem. But that's not what the Bible speaks of when it's talking about jealousy, when it describes jealousy, either to God or to human beings uh, in, in Scripture as well. Um, God's, uh, another thing about jealousy, uh, God's jealousy in Scripture is always directed against idolatry. God display, he, he, he displays himself as the jealous God. And we saw several weeks ago when we talked about the names of God, we brought this up, that here's an attribute that is apparently so, uh, so significant to the person of God, it is even spoken of as a name of God. So you have, do I have them up here? No, I don't. Uh, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, this is the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, you shall not, not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And it says in Exodus thirty-four fourteen, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So this, this, is, this is a self-revelation uh, of God, that this is who he is. And he displays his jealousy in this covenantal context, where he has a people that he has called to himself. He has created creation, and he is Lord over all that creation. All of it is due to him in glory. And when it turns and gives worship to something else, to an element of the creation, he is rightly jealous because that worship belonged to him. Everything belongs to him. Um, it's really interesting to think about jealousy uh, and the pic- some of the pictures that God has given us to image him by. The, 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 in this context, the most important one, I think, is the picture of marriage. That human marriage displays a great deal about, um, about our relationship to Christ, certainly, but also displays a great deal about the nature of these relationships. So there, we find that there's a profound analogy between God's covenant with us and our marriage covenants. Uh, with the, with the, the image of a marriage relationship, if you've been struggling with this, I think that that makes it much easier to see um, why jealousy is a necessary component of covenantal love. So if, if a, and he, he brings this up in the chapter. Um, it, well, let me just quote him because I, I can't say it better. He says, when a man's beloved wife turns away and loves another man, the husband is rightly jealous. Now, do you agree with this next statement? If he were not, that would be evidence that he does not care for her. If a wife goes and is unfaithful to her husband, and that husband is not jealous for that wife, 
What does that say about his love for his wife? That surely speaks of an absence of love. So that jealousy, so far from being a problem with the notion of the love of God, um, if God's love is real and if it's true and if it's, if it's a covenantally faithful love, jealousy must be the case. It's only uh, the, the absence of it would be a problem of, with love, not the, uh, not the existence of it. I'm going to move on to hatred. If you want to slow me down, then this is the time for a question or a comment. Okay. Hatred. Uh, He says, the concept of hatred is more difficult when it comes to perceiving uh, a need to reconcile something with love and goodness. Would you agree with that? I I don't think jealousy is a problem. But how do we do this? How do we say um, there is hatred with God, um, but God is love? Oh, man, I didn't make... I meant to make that font larger. I'm sorry if this is really small. I'm sure it's the computer. That's got to be what it is. It couldn't be me. It, it is right that this would be more difficult for us, and there's a couple of reasons for that. And we're going to get back into the, the reality that words have more than one meaning. And we're just, this is something we're going to, we'll never stop uh, having to wrestle with. No word, no word has one meaning and only one meaning and one way of being used. One, it's just not the way that words work. So you have... Um, you have the reality that hatred and love are contrasted with each other in Scripture. They're spoken of as opposites. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. You have the command in Leviticus 19, 17, do not hate your brother in your heart. But we've also got a number of other things. Psalm 97, 10 uh, o oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Psalm 101.3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Psalm 5.5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. And now it just got a little bit harder because now we can't just say, well, whoops, but he says hate evil. Well, now it says that God hates all evildoers. He hates all evildoers. Revelation 2.6, he's just been raking this church over the coals. But he has one piece of good news for them. He says, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Psalm 119, 113. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. We're getting into the, are you familiar with the imprecatory psalms? Some graphic sometimes language of praying for God's judgment to come upon people. Um, And clearly speaking of that prayer, and in a sense, as we're going to see, of that sentiment as something that is, that is good, that is reflective of the, of the heart of God. So, Frame says, Scripture then seems to recommend hatred in some contexts, but to deplore it in others. So, we must look more closely. 
to see if there are different kinds of hatred or different situations in which it is and is not appropriate. Right? And you, I just want to say, when we do that, when we feel a difficulty like this and we say, okay, what we need to do is we need to look more closely and figure out if there are different contexts, we're not at all trying to justify or rationalize something. We are recognizing how language works. This is just how words work. It's never that simple. Uh, I can do this kind of thing to justify something and to jump through hoops, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to inevitably do this anytime I'm trying to think very carefully about an issue because that's the, rea- that's the nature of language. We cannot get around that. Um, so let's, let's do that. Well, what, what is it that the Bible says about hatred and um, contextual differences, perhaps? And he, he gives us a few really helpful thoughts here. He says, first, hate or hatred in Scripture does not always refer to hostility. Sometimes, we'll see, often it does, but it doesn't always refer to hostility. And he brings up uh, Genesis 29 as an example. Look at these two sentences in verses 30 and 31. What does this say about how the word hate is used here? So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for her uh, uh, for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Put the two statements together. What does this say about the hatred that's being spoken of here in reference to Jacob? He hated Leah in the sense of preferring her less than Rachel. It's a statement of, um, of relative priorities. It's a measure that's being used here. So hate and love sometimes, not always, but sometimes they refer to relative priorities. Can you think of any other example in Scripture? Does it pop out at you where hatred is brought up in this way? Okay. There's a, there's a sense of choice there that's being emphasized. Not necessarily some sense of emotional disgust of one and not the other, but a sense of I have chosen to put my love on. Yeah? What about something that, gee, I'm fishing now for an answer. Good. That's exactly, I, I caught, that's exactly right. Yeah. Anyone who does not hate his father and mother is not worthy of me. How many times in Scripture does proper godly love of family get commanded as this high thing? Those who don't care for their own family are worse than unbelievers, it says. But, it, but he says anyone who does not hate his father and mother is not worthy of me. Well, that is a way that the concepts of love and hatred are, are, are used linguistically. Sometimes it's used to speak of priority, and that's clearly what Jesus is doing. That's what is spoken of about Jacob, that there was a, a very obvious to everyone priority. Rachel here, Leah here. And so when it's spoken of of how he treated and thought of Leah, it uses the word hate. Right? I don't need all of the baggage in my mind about hatred to come with me into that verse. It all doesn't apply to that verse, right? So sometimes hatred is used in that way. Um, Lots of times it's not, though, right? Lots of times hatred is spoken of, and there is hostility in mind. That's, That's what we think of more often. So that brings us to the second here. Even when hate includes hostility, 
that hostility should be understood essentially as a policy of opposition. Now, this is where I, I really slowed down, and uh, this, this was very um, helpful to me. Uh, and so when that happens, you'll know when that happens when I'm teaching, because the next slide will be the big frame quote slide. So that's the case here, all right? If you can't see it, just listen. But I want to put it up there so those who can see it, could maybe that'll help. But I'll just read it as well. Um, okay, so here's what he says. Just as, so here's the comparison with love, all right? Just as love in Scripture is more act than feeling, though the latter is often involved, so it is with hatred. To hate someone is to oppose their goals and to take action if possible to prevent them from succeeding. This hatred may include emotional revulsion, of course. Indeed, we should be emotionally disgusted with wickedness. But one may hate the wicked in the sense of opposing their policies and plans without feeling emotional disgust for them personally. Similarly, one may love another person by seeking to help meet the person's needs without feeling emotional passion for that person. Pause for a second. Are you still tracking with his comparison? This helps us not just in thinking through hatred, but thinking through love as well. Hatred may also include desiring the worst for someone else, but it does not necessarily mean that. Mike? Yeah. Well, even in the way I read some of the passages before, and I put it in italics on my sheet, so when I read it and I say hate that voice brings emotion with it. We need to be careful as we're, as we're, um, um, what am I trying to say? There's, David? And what, what is the difference in meaning that it takes on? Yeah, yeah, which is, which is to Mike's point too. It's what makes me, in this quote, it's what makes me appreciate a few of the things that he says with may. Um, it may include desiring the worst for someone. When we get to this, I think that's what we think of most often when we think of hatred. And now I have to wrestle. There, there are, I think, uh, depending on how we were, are going to take this, now we're falling into some of the realms of the love commands. Do not hate your brother in your heart, right? We remember that there are, the Bible did, we just read them, forbid us from certain kinds of hatred, right? Uh, what about this one, though? One may hate the person, no. Uh, where am I looking? This hatred may include emotional revulsion, of course. Indeed, we should be emotionally disgusted with wickedness. Maybe that's a helpful question. What is the difference between this and this, desiring the worst for someone else? I think of that, and I think that might, maybe that's where I need to be wrestling and being, being, um, being careful. But the way that he compares this with love, I really appreciate. So what does this mean for the, for the command, love your enemy? Let's, let's think about that. What does this mean when we're told to love our enemy? What are we being commanded to? And what are we not being commanded to? Okay, so you'd say there's clearly got to be something um, action-inducing in that command. If I if I have an enemy, and look, why is someone my enemy? Um, they might maybe they shouldn't be my enemy, but I would hope that my enemies are wicked people. 
and that that's why they're my enemies. We have enemies, right? Is it hateful to have enemies? So love my enemy. Am I being commanded to think of that wicked, wicked person and try to produce some warm uh, feelings about who they are and what they're doing? Surely not that. Should I be concerned for their best as an image bearer of God? Absolutely I should, right? Uh, To me, this statement is just helping me to to wrestle a little bit more and to try to think about about categories here. Um, If I oppose my enemy in their wicked ways, but I take the chance, any chances I get to serve their true good, even though they repulse me as they are right now, is that, have have I loved them? I would say, yes, I've loved them then. I've consciously chosen to work for their good, even though I oppose who they are <laughs> and what they're, what they're about, right? Um, I haven't failed if I do that and don't feel tremendously warm feelings toward them. Feelings can come, right? The, uh, the latter feeling is often involved, uh, but it's not, uh, it, it need not be fundamental to the definition of love and hatred. You thought that was the end of that quote. For example, it is possible to hate some vicious despot, Hitler, Stalin, in the sense of opposing his plans and calling upon God to judge him, and indeed being emotionally disgusted by his character and actions, while at the same time desiring his conversion. We should always keep that qualification in mind when we pray the imprecatory psalms, which call down judgments on the enemies of God and on the psalmist. When God brings judgment on the wicked, he's displaying good things about himself. If I see the wicked who oppose God, and I oppose them, and I pray for God's judgment, that's not an inappropriately hateful thing to do. We must say that I am hating them in this sense. I am opposing them and praying that God will frustrate their efforts. But what he adds here is, I must guard my heart toward that person so that I am hoping for their true best, which would involve conversion and repentance. A great counterexample of this is Jonah, right? Who's called by God to go and proclaim his judgment, and he won't do it. Why? Because he knows God. And he knows if these people listen and repent, he will relent. And so he tries to not go, because he wants the worst for them. Getting swallowed by a fish is an indication that you're not, you're not obeying God. All right? So that's a good example of what, what I think he's helping us to see we shouldn't be doing. Anyway, okay, we have taken... Oh, goodness sakes. Let's keep going here. Um, okay, but we can't skip over this. Does, does, my, does the reality of who I am play into these wrestlings? That I am... Um, Let's think of God's elect, okay? Those whom God has chosen before the foundations of the world who are nonetheless all sinners, right? That's me. I am an object of his love. I am a sinner. Uh, As the the elect objects of his love, Ephesians 2.3, we once were by nature objects of his wrath because of our sin. We were wicked, and God really hated us in our wickedness. We were headed for hell. Next verse, Ephesians 2.4. But God loved us in Christ. 
since that love went back before the creation of the world, now here's an interesting statement, there must have been a period of time when God loved and hated us simultaneously. As we're thinking through these ideas and how love and hatred, what they mean. Before an elect person is converted, God both loves and hates him. God opposes him and prevents him in the long term from achieving his wicked purposes. But God also has glorious blessings in store for him. The model of how God regarded me before I came to Christ, even as I was chosen from before the foundation of the world, the model of how God looked at me then is an excellent model for how we look at our enemies today. We oppose them in their wickedness, but we long to be instruments of God's graciousness if God chooses to let us, and we hope for their good. That's what God has done for us. Um, Hatred and love are not always in every respect incompatible. That's the point. That's the question we're wrestling with. How does hatred mesh with the clear sense of of the goodness and love of God? And the answer is they do not um, find, that we don't find them to be incompatible ideas. I'm going to kind of rush ahead here. Uh, I'm sorry. But that was good. I I think of the three, that's the the hardest of these. Uh, Jealousy, not, not that hard. Wrath here, we've talked a lot about the wrath of God as an expression of his righteousness and goodness. But hatred, we don't talk about that often. And the Bible speaks of it in reference to God. So I think that's good. Wrath, the third one. Does the Bible ascribe ascribe wrath to God? Uh, Very much so, abundantly. Um, It's striking how much wrath is spoken of in relation to God. You could look at these passages. I was going to read them, but we'll skip over them. All of them are examples of wrath being directly uh, um, ascribed to God. Old and New Testament. Right? Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Uh, we get the idea of wrath from some words in the Hebrew and Greek as well. We translate them either wrath or anger or fury. So if you, most often, not every time, but most of the time, when you read in your English Bible the word anger, it's the same word as is used for the word wrath. It's just being translated in a different way because of the context and what's being emphasized. Uh, When we think of, and when it speaks in our Bibles of wrath, it's specifically highlighting not just his anger, but kind of as as was mentioned uh, by Roxanne, uh, this is, wrath is an an action-inducing thing. Anger leading to action. So we could say that jealousy and hatred um, motivate wrath. While wrath actually executes punishment, wrath uh, breaks out. And we have these terrifying places in scriptures uh, that, uh, that speak like that, that he broke out against someone. What would it be like for Almighty God, almost as if he can contain it no longer, or he will contain it no longer, and his wrath breaks out against you? What on earth? It's terrifying, and that's the first of the two things we would say biblically about God's wrath. It is terrifying. Any attempt to consider God's wrath that leaves us anything other than terrified is inappropriate. Hebrews 10.31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you even have places in Scripture, Deuteronomy 7, Exodus 4, God speaks to his own people and warns them about his wrath. Don't 
Don't come up further on the mountain, or my wrath will break out against you. He says, uh, Frame says this, like C.S. Lewis's Aslan, God is good, but he is not tame. There is something wild, mysterious, and threatening about God's wrath. Uh, But that, of course, is not all that we as Christians take from the Bible about the wrath of God, is it? It is terrifying, but... And now we go back to what we saw about righteousness and salvation, right? I would have expected his righteousness to express itself fundamentally in, in torturous judgment. And the Bible holds out his righteousness in all the contexts of salvation. In the course of history, God is revealed as the God who is eager to defer his own anger. He's eager to forgive those who turn from sin. So we've seen the word anger or wrath ascribed to God, but God specifically calls himself, not just angry, but slow to anger. He calls himself slow to anger. In Psalm 103.8, in Joel 2.13, in Jonah 4.2, God is spoken of specifically as slow in reference to his wrath. And I think this is why the order that we've gone in in these couple of weeks is so important. Until I understand the goodness of God, the perfections of God, um, and the meaning behind the Bible's revelation that God is righteous, until I really understand those things about God, I don't have much chance about, of thinking properly about his wrath. Uh, when I, uh, um, I mean, we think of his infinite righteousness, I think of that and I realize that he is, in every conceivable sense, he is the Lord over everything that he's made. And then I consider our rebellion against him, against that God. You, you don't have to think about that for long before you, you, you start to get the sense that his wrath against sin is good. It's good, it's right, it's proper that sinners would be met with God's wrath. Something good is being displayed about God when that happens. That's really hard for us to say because we know that in saying it, we're talking about ourselves. We are the bad guy. Nobody likes to think of themselves as the bad guy. We're the bad guy in in the story of, of history. We're the rebels against the right, perfect, good king. So do you see how far we've fallen off the path if we find ourselves wrestling with the idea, how could it be that God could be good and loving and he could, be, he could have wrath? How could that be? If I'm wrestling with that question, which we, which we wrestle with, right? When I'm wrestling with that question, I have wandered off the path so far back in my understanding, I've got a long ways to go to recover my steps. His wrath, is, it only makes sense in the context of his righteousness and his goodness. I forget who I am if I've messed that up. We're going to cut out a couple of things, but I do want us to watch. I'm not going to let you out of here without this. This is two minutes, and then we're done. I'll apologize to the Sunday school teachers. Two minutes. Uh, If you haven't seen this already, you'll have seen it now. Everyone needs to have seen this. Uh, Sproul answering a question uh, in a a Q&A. If God is slow to anger and patient, 
excuse me, since God is slow to anger, <laughs> we're always learning. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Time out. <laughs> Didn't we just have that question a second ago? We did. Yeah, it's a little, I think a little, we little did. Nuance. That God's punishment for Adam was so severe. This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God had said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, Thanatos, that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. The question is, the question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? Good. So now you've seen it. There's more. We're going we're gonna to stop there. Um, this person writes in, tragic. I am trying to reconcile. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Thank you, guys. We're dismissed.